Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. This week we're talking to Marcus Di Paola, which I think I'm mispronouncing. Marcus is a freelance photojournalist who has done a lot of cool things in his life, but this time we're talking about uh, kind of a cool thing that's probably a scary thing for a lot of people, which is Ebola. He went to Liberia to photograph Ebola, and we talked about what that was like. So it's an hour-long conversation that's pretty cool. We talk about the logistics. We talk about what he saw, what he did, what happened out there, and what's happening out there. It's a thing that... It's a thing where, as a journalist, you oftentimes put yourself into situations that other people wouldn't necessarily put themselves into. And I enjoyed hearing his perspective on what he did and what he saw, and I think you will too. And if you do, please consider subscribing on iTunes for the high price of nada. But for now, enjoy the talk. So I'm sitting here with Ebola patient one in Chicago, I guess. That's that's, kind of you, right? Do you feel that way? I don't know about Ebola patient one, but uh, Ebola monitoring guy number one. Ebola monitoring guy number one. As long as there is a one there, I think we're on good. (laughs) How about number one that's actually publicly talking? Because I'm sure there's doctors and nurses that are here um, that are being monitored but didn't actually volunteer um, to talk to people. Well, it's kind of interesting because I came in, right, and you wouldn't shake my hand. Yeah. You, uh, what do we do instead? So I did what we actually do at the Ebola treatment centers, at, uh, like at Doctors Without Borders and um, with uh, uh, the government-run Ebola treatment centers in Liberia. So uh, it's kind of like kicking a soccer ball, except you're kicking someone else's foot. We tapped the inside of our feet, and uh, I learned that from um, the Doctors Without Borders people. What is? You, you can't shake hands. And what are you wearing? Right now, I am wearing shark slippers. It was the first thing I noticed. It was. Uh, <laughs> I like it though. I like it if, if uh, you know, it's just good. They're warm. Uh, you know, when, once, you're, once you're clear of Ebola, you know, maybe I can borrow your stuff. <laughs> but so, how are you feeling? I feel great. I feel like I can run a marathon. My temperature, as you saw just a couple minutes ago, uh, was 97.0. I'll take it again right now. Um, <laughs> seriously, I feel like I can run a marathon right now. 97.6. There you go. It's a little bit more realistic. As long as I stay below 100.0 or 100.4, that's the magic number, 100.4, um, I'm good. Well, so uh, you are besieged by media folks, right? That is coming to an end, thankfully. Um, I'm going to invite some people over for my last uh, in-person check that I'm going to get from the Chicago Department of Health. And... Uh, let the media in for that one, but uh, for now, everybody's calmed down a little bit. Well, it must be kind of weird, right? I mean, you were telling me about this Fox News call. What they ask you? Yeah, um, they ask. Well, they ask the standard questions, but uh, the the host uh, asked me that if the president was uh, going to come to my apartment and take me to a, a secret FEMA internment camp, um, and said that I'd never be heard from again. I said, "Well, I'm on the camp yet, and you got my phone number." So, you're concerned? No, I'm not concerned. Just so you know, the, from the second that my plane took off from Casablanca, which is my transit city to Monrovia, um, to the time that I landed back at JFK, didn't make physical contact with any other human being at all. That means no shaking hands, that means no accidentally bumping into people, that means no hugging, no fist bumps. Uh, the extent of my human contact with another person over the course of that week or those 10 days was how we greeted each other, which is bumping shoes. Presumably you weren't wearing the shark slippers, though. No, I was not. I was wearing uh, black uh, waterproof boots, uh, which is important because if I was wearing sneakers, then I'd get chlorine all over my sneakers because literally every time you step into or out of a new building, uh, they make you disinfect your shoes. In Africa. In, yeah, in Africa. And, of course, uh, Africa being the continent, uh, you were in what, Liberia? I was in Liberia, yeah, for uh, just over a week. I'm just trying to show that I know Africa's not a country. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I think is an issue with the Ebola thing going yes. around. Yes. 
But so, what makes a man, on a more serious note, what makes a man go out there and chase Ebola to photograph? You know, I was, I'm, I'm not just a photographer, I'm a reporter too, but one week uh, after Ferguson, I was uh, looking around for about the Ebola coverage, um, and I saw uh, that reporters were really just going there for one week at a time. I know that John Moore um, with Getty was there for two weeks, and he did absolutely incredible work, and I was so impressed with that. Um, so I started really following the story a bit more. Um, and then, like, the week after that, I couldn't find a single report from on the ground. It just looked like everybody was reporting using, uh, uh, by calling aid workers um, from safe zones, like from New York. You can't report a story like this by calling people from New York. You have to have people on the ground. And that was the week that I decided to book my tickets because I was just so sick of not having actual concrete information um, about what was happening. Uh, when was this? Um, this was two or three weeks after Ferguson. So September. And when did you leave? I left in October. Uh, early October? Early October. October 10th to be. October 10th? Expect, yeah. What were you thinking on the way there? So I had done all the reading beforehand. I had, I had done, uh, I had read what's called a literature review, which is a, three, three, a team of scientists, usually three to five scientists, go through every single paper, uh, every single scientific paper that's been written about a subject. In this case, it was Ebola. Um, and I knew 100% that unless I came in contact, direct contact, meaning I had to touch it and then touch my eyes or touch a mucosal membrane, um, eyes, nose, or mouth. Unless I did that, um, I'd be fine. Um, and I would have to come into direct co contact with bodily fluids of an Ebola patient. That means vomit or diarrhea. And I was pretty confident that I would notice it if something, if someone had vomited on my arm or whatever. So, I mean, I was thinking that I'd be fine. My biggest concern was malaria. Actually, if we can find them. I still have my uh, malaria. Here you go. I got my malarial pills with me. And these are incredibly important because malaria is everywhere over there. Malaria is... You're more likely to get malaria than any other disease uh, while you're in Africa. And it's just so scary because if you get malaria, the first thing you get is a high fever, which is the beginning symptom of Ebola. Um, and if that happens, you're going to get stuck going to an Ebola treatment center, and you're going to get stuck in the same room as people who may have Ebola. And if you don't have Ebola already, if you just have malaria, you're probably going to get Ebola. That was my biggest, that was my biggest fear. So malaria is a gateway drug to Ebola. I guess, exactly. In that kind of scenario. Hey, don't those malaria pills last like 30 years or something? Or they am do. I thinking of the shots? Or No, there's, there's no shot for malaria. Uh, the, that's typhoid. You're thinking of typhoid. Okay. Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is actually working on a shot for malaria, but it's it's not an easy disease to work with. No, uh, anything that mosquitoes like is probably um, well beyond our yeah. comprehension. Yeah. But so you get out there, and how long were you out there? I was out there for. Nine, ten days, depending on how you want to count it exactly. Um, I landed on the 10th, and I left on the 19th. And, you know, I'm just kind of curious about, so where do you, you know, the logistics of it. I mean, where do you land, and what do you do? So the logistics of it is actually pretty entertaining. Uh, you land at Monrovia International Airport, which you can only charitably describe as an airport. It's really a building with three rooms. There's no air conditioning. It's nasty. It's dirty. Um, you go through customs. You get out. Um, and I decided to wait for my driver instead of taking a taxi, thankfully, uh, because taxis have been known to spread Ebola just because people vomit in them and they've been using them as impromptu ambulances just because there aren't enough ambulances in the entire country to transport the patients. Um, now, I had what I would consider the best driver of the country. He was incredible. He had a, uh, a yellow car, which freaked everybody out uh, that I was working with because um, they were afraid it was a taxi, but it wasn't a taxi, it was just a yellow car. Um, and at one point, uh, we broke down because we hit a big, big pothole, 
And as after we broke down, he went and went to go get a mechanic. This mechanic comes back, and the mechanic looks like he's about 12 years old. I'm like, Willie, what are you doing? Who is this? He's, he's like, probably 12. <laughs> he probably he's, is. He, he mechanic, he mechanic, he good. You know, Africa, Africa. I'm like, Willie, how old is he? He said he's 14, but uh, I think he's 12. I think he like. I'm like, Willie, he knows how to do the job, right? He good mechanic. He he know the job. This 12-year-old boy takes off our tire, pulls out the piece that's piece of uh, equipment that's uh, uh, damaged, yanks it out, goes over to the side of the road, grabs a rock, and starts banging the piece of equipment <laughs> back into the proper shape. Puts it back in, I swear to God. Puts it back in, puts the tire back on, and tells Willie to start the car. And I'm like, Willie, is this safe? Don't worry, he know the job. He know the job. We start the car, and we're on our way. It worked perfectly. It worked beautifully. You know what? Sometimes simple works. Logistically, it's fun. That's the word I choose to use. How'd you find Willie? Um, I actually hired a fixer um, that I uh, found by calling a local journalist there and asking for a recommendation. Um, and he found Willie. Uh, his name is Emmanuel, um, and he's... He's a good fixer. He, he got me out of paying a lot of bribes to policemen just by saying, he's a reporter covering Ebola. Do you really want to make physical contact with money that he touched? Is that really, uh, that's what Willie would say? No, that's what my fixer would say. Okay, so you so it's you, your fixer, and Willie? Yeah. And, uh, huh, I guess that's that's a way. And, uh, but, so, okay, the car breaks down, then, then what? Well, the car actually broke down on the way, uh, it was on our third day. Um, it broke down on the way to, um, uh, we were actually out headed to rural villages uh, where most reporters hadn't gone. I was annoyed by the fact that I couldn't get any reports out of rural villages. Um, so we ended up going to one of the very few health centers that was still open in the country um, that was treating non-Ebola patients. And it was cram-packed. It was packed with pregnant women. They had been coming around from miles and miles and miles as far away as Monrovia um, to come to this clinic to get treatment, uh, to get prenatal checkups and stuff like that just because no one was providing services for them in the city just because everything's closed. Uh, people are, healthcare workers are so afraid of catching Ebola accidentally from patients that they just left. And this this facility was actually pretty cool. I have a photo of um, I have a photo of the makeshift PPE, or which which is the spacesuits, the hazmat suits. I have a photo of the makeshift hazmat suits that they created themselves because the government hadn't sent them any yet. Um, it was a clear plastic tarp, a clear plastic tarp that one would use to like cover up um, cover up a car or cover up um, to use as a tent. And uh, they had, like cut it into like sleeves and like duct tape it so that uh, their their nurses and doctors could wear it while they were initially examining patients to make sure that they didn't have fevers. It was it was it was ingenious. It was brilliant. Well, so well, so you're there and you're photographing people, right? And then uh, what happens? Um, well, the day generally goes like this: you wake up. Um, if you have something planned, you go to that. Um, but if you don't have something planned, you kind of got to get in the car and just drive around. So you drive around, you hit all the hotspots, you go to the Ministry of Health, you go to the Ministry of Information, you go to clinics, you go to ETUs, uh, you go to places like that. You go, you take your photos. Um, if you're really, really lucky, you're in a place where you can get cell signal. Um, well, data cell signal, and you can file your photos or video or uh, text reports from the field. If you're unlucky, you got to go back to the hotel blow up an entire hour um, in transit uh, because the roads are awful, by the way. Um, and then you got to blow up another hour filing and then you got to blow up another hour um, trying to get back to uh, whatever story you were at. So thankfully, a lot of the time I was in uh, areas with cell signal. I'll tell you, um, I was able to file photos while I was with the burial team. Um, and I was pretty much able to post stuff online in real time, um, which was really cool for both my assignment desk and for me. So, 
Um, and, and I do a lot of jumping around. But so on day one, how long is it before you see something interesting? On day one, day one was just logistics. Day one is uh, getting settled. Day one is uh, making sure you have all your gear with you. Day one is making sure you have your spacesuits. Day one is making sure none of your equipment was dam- damaged in transit. It's topping off your batteries. Um, and it's making phone calls to kind of arrange stories for the next day and the next day and the next day. Day one is it's, it's buying things that you can't get outside of the country um, that you need in order to do your job inside the country. It's the unsexy day. It's the, it's the unsexy day, exactly. It's the day that uh, that they don't teach you about in journalism school. Exactly. I don't exactly. think about it. But well, so day, I, I can tell you what happened on day one. So on day one, I was driving to uh, the Liberia Cellcom offices, which is the only uh, provider in Liberia that has 4G network coverage, um, and I needed a data stick for them. On the way, um, I spotted a huge crowd of people uh, around the river. Um, I'm like, all right, hey, guys, pull over the car. Uh, because anytime you see something interesting, you pull over the car, you check it out. If it's nothing, you go on your way. But if it's something, you hang out. Um, pulled over the car, walked over, saw a million people in spacesuits. I, I just it was it was like a crowd of of uh, uh, hazmat workers with the Red Cross. Immediately spin around, go back to the car, grab gloves, snap on the gloves, um, and then walk over. Um, Started to take a couple pictures, got immediately stopped uh, by the uh, PR person for the Red Cross that was there and said, you got to arrange this in advance. So I ended up getting the cell phone number, heading back to the hotel, and uh, or well, heading to the Cellcom Liberia office, um, calling them, setting up something for the next day. And it turns out that by setting something up for the next day and not harassing them that first day, got me so much more access than if I had just been a douchebag and uh, gone on and shot and be like, I'm on public property, you can't do anything. Um, huh. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I was waiting for the double cross. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, that was that was my day, too. That was when I got all my great shots. That's That was the shot that got on the uh, front page of the print version of The Guardian um, and a couple other shots that made it on the front page of a bunch of Chinese newspapers. Um, and a uh, English article that got translated into Mandarin um, and made it to a couple million Chinese newspapers. That was that was probably the best decision I could have made. The NGOs over there, they're they're really good. They they want to give you access, but they also want to make sure you don't violate patient privacy. But so, what were they doing there? So what ended up happening at the river was. There was either a homicide or a suicide, um, and everybody was afraid to touch the body because they didn't know whether he had Ebola or not. Um, so the guy had stolen something from some shopkeeper, and the shopkeeper was chasing him, trying to get the thing back, um, and he was either pushed or jumped into the river, um, and he died. Uh, so a big crowd formed, and somebody called the Ebola treatment people, um, and the, uh, the body team showed up and collected the body. Do you know anything about, uh, did the guy have Ebola? Do they have no idea? It's really hard to follow up on these things. No, I know, I it's, understand. It's, I mean, logistically speaking, everybody's changing cell numbers all the time because not every single provider works in every single part of the city. Um, aid workers like to trade phones with each other because they really only are in country for two to three weeks at a time. Um, and the one phone number that you had for one person, for one public relations person, may now be the phone number for the janitor that cleans the floor. Or, on the other hand, it might be the jan- the, uh, the guy who's in charge of the whole operation. Well, but what it shows, too, though, uh, beyond whether or not the guy has a bowl is just, just sort of how it's being handled, right? Yeah. And what the what the culture is, where yeah. people don't want to touch the... the the dead guy because he might have Ebola. Exactly. Every every single body is is treated that way. Every single body is treated like it has Ebola until it's been proven that either it doesn't or it's so obvious that the person doesn't have Ebola that it's not even worth uh, doing the test. So I'll, I'll tell you what happened on the second day because that's a great way to, to put it. On the second day, uh, what happened was is I went out with the body teams um, and... Uh, that thing happened with, that I was telling you about with, earlier with Princess. My first stop 
was... Uh, um, Princess was uh, before we recorded. Right, before we recorded. Um, I went to, uh, with the team to go check out the body, or go pick up the body of uh, the deceased mother of Princess, uh, a 13-year-old girl and another 9-year-old girl. Um, and uh, her father had been in the Ebola treatment center, and he's still in the Ebola treatment center. Um, and the grandmother was sick with Ebola, but there was no room for her in the treatment center, so she was just in a shack. Um, so that was our first stop. They had no problem with us taking the body. Uh, well, with the Red Cross taking the body. I didn't take the body. Um, our second stop... Are you sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> if uh, Just in case the public health department is listening. listening. I'm sure about that. Uh, the second... The second stop um, was actually at a village outside of Monrovia. Um, we went to the village. Uh, a big crowd gathered as they as the Red Cross asked permission to take the body and explained that it would be cremated. Um, and the people of the village wouldn't allow it. They said that he died of malaria, or the victim had died of malaria, um, and not Ebola. And they just flat out refused to even tell them where the body was. So they weren't able to pick up the body, and they do have a legal right in Liberia to um, to decide whether the body gets taken or not. So we left. We just left the body there. Um, uh, we went on to our third stop, which was in a, uh, a different slum in Monrovia, uh, not West Point, uh, because that's handled by a different team. But um, it was in a predominantly Muslim neighborhood where the community didn't want the body taken and um, uh, didn't want it cremated. Um, but the husband, who was also a Muslim, thankfully found out that in order to qualify as not Ebola, in order to get that death certificate to get a, uh, a proper burial, um, you have to wait two days for a testing team to show up. Uh, the testing team has to take the sample, send it to the lab, the lab takes seven days to process it. So that's nine days between when the person dies, well, ten days because the team is backlogged by one day. So ten days between when the person dies and when you can actually get the certificate. And then presumably another day before you can actually get someone to bury them. Um, the problem with that is that bodies start to smell bad. Um, and the husband did not want that. For his wife, so he told. Even though the community was upset, he told the uh, the burial team that they had permission to take her, and they did. Is that how big a problem is that over there? From what you can tell, where because people don't want to give up bodies, it's spreading. It is that. Yeah, that's a problem. It's a real problem. Um, there's been a lot of talk about uh, burial rituals where. Uh, People have to bathe the body, people have to clean the body, people have to kiss the body um, as they're buried. It's just, it's part of their regular mm -hmm. culture. And thankfully, in the capital city, it's, there's so much media and so much radio and so much information out there that says don't touch dead bodies no matter what, that they've kind of stopped that. But I imagine that out in the village, where you don't have radio, you don't have newspapers, you don't have uh, government workers saying, don't do this uh, because you'll catch Ebola. I imagine it's a bigger problem there. And until that gets fixed, it's going to keep spreading. What's the... Uh, um, so that's... See, and I, I mostly just want to hear your story of the whole adventure. So, you know, what's next? Day three. Day three. Day three was next. Day three, um, I went to Doctors Without Borders in the morning. Um, and they said, uh, you have to come back tomorrow uh, because we have a full media day today. We, can't, we don't have time to give you a tour. Um, I didn't like that, but I mean, they said come back tomorrow in the morning. So I figured, all right, what's the harm of waiting another day? Um, I drove off to Island Clinic, which was an Ebola treatment center. Uh, the Ebola Treatment Center. It's the, it's the biggest one in the country uh, right now. Um, they're actually building more of them um, as we think the U.S. Army is. Um, so it won't be the biggest one for long, but as of today, it's still the biggest one. Um, I met a guy named um, 
I don't remember his name. But he was special because he was able to stay in the hazmat suit for two hours at a time. And I met him just as he was ending his shift. And he had come out, and he had come out to talk to some of the families of the people who were waiting outside. Uh, there were a bunch of families outside waiting uh, to hear any sort of news from people that were inside. Um, and they, they couldn't get any information just because no one's talking with the families. So um, they were hoping for someone to come out who might have seen them. Um, my guy hadn't seen any of the people, but he was trying to educate the people who were afraid that Ebola was airborne, who were afraid that Ebola was foodborne, who were afraid that if they drank water from the same stream that someone with Ebola had drank from, that they would get sick. And what he told them is what we know. Unless you come in direct contact with bodily fluids, meaning diarrhea or vomit, you're not going to get sick. Um, so I took a portrait of him. Um, I talked to some of the families there, and I went back to my hotel to file the story uh, and do some other miscellaneous uh, uh, filing things that I had to do, write a quick story about the general atmosphere, just color stories. So what's that family? Um, so they're waiting for information, and they're concerned that they're not going to get it? They aren't getting it. They aren't getting it. They just aren't. No one's talking to them. So I imagine that's a problem. Are they upset about that? They are upset. Um, and rightly so. But right now, all the resources in Liberia are dedicated to stopping the outbreak and not necessarily telling the families what's happening with their loved ones. And it's a tragedy, but it's also a sign that there just need to be more healthcare workers there. Um, because... People like hygienists are doing the jobs of nurses. People like nurses are doing the jobs of doctors. And people like doctors are doing the jobs of hospital administrators and educators. Um, and there's really no other choice because there just aren't enough people over there to help. What's this clinic look like, Island Clinic? Island Clinic. It's actually a former Doctors Without Borders clinic. It's massive. It's got uh, seven or eight floors. I didn't count exactly. Um, it's got a long run-up to it. There's actually two gates. So at the first gate, um, which is guarded by no one in hazmat suits, um, you can just go in, in and out freely. There's a, a hand-washing station, a boot-washing station. There's a decontamination area where a guy with a sprayer will spray you if you ask him. Um, in the second area, there, it starts to get into people with hazmat suits. Um, that's the low-risk area. And once you actually get inside the clinic, which I never got inside because uh, there's a media ban country right now actually um, that's where the high risk area is and that's where you have to wear PPE which is what everybody calls it again it's the hazmat suits is it like crammed with people it is absolutely crammed with people um, but at the time that I went there they hadn't started seeing the decline uh, in cases that they're seeing now and the decline in cases isn't exactly real and I'll show you a graph on that in a minute or two um, just so you can you can see it for yourself and kind of describe it, um, but it's it's a big modern looking building with glass. Are a lot of the people working there? You're talking about you know nurses doing doctors' works and doctors doing administrators' works. Are they all local? Are they a lot of them are local and a lot of them are expats. I'd say um, most of them are local and uh, about. Maybe a quarter of them are expats. But at the government treatment center, that's at MSF, by the way, that's a doctor's without borders. But at the government treatment center itself, um, everybody's local. So, what's this graph? Oh, so this graph, um, this graph is actually a chart of WHO data. And as you can see, it's uh, not looking very good. These are the total number of Ebola cases. Um, it's an Ebola outbreak tracker. It's an Ebola outbreak tracker. These are, this is the raw data uh, from the World Health Organization. And you can see it both in the logarithmic version and the linear version. Um, and you can see right here, it's, it's logarithmic. It's, it means it's going up. That means it's not just going up, but the doubling time um, is decreasing. Um, so if you look down here at the doubling time, the doubling time for cases right now is 30 days. And it's been hovering at about 30 days since um, uh, 
June 20th. So what that means is 40 cases turn into 80 cases. 80 cases turn into 160 cases. 160 cases turn into 320 cases, and so on and so forth every 30 days on average. So sometimes it's actually, it actually went as low as 22 days at one point, um, and now it's at 32 days. So it's, it's been hovering around 30 days, and that's not good. You, what you want to see is you want to see the doubling time increase so much that it's negligible and that you can't really see any doubling. Uh, you want to see an actual decrease. And if you go back up to the first graph, which is totally bullet casualties, there's never, there has never been a single decline in Ebola casualties. So that's not good. That's bad. That's really bad. Um, let me put it this way. If this blue line, the one that signifies number of cases, keeps increasing, it's going to spread to other countries. And the more it spreads to other countries, the more likely it is to get into the slums of India or the slums of Brazil. And if that happens, I'm buying a cabin in Montana. You're going to become one of these Fox News guys? I'm going to become one of these Fox News guys. That's uh, No, it's, it's a real interesting situation to watch unfold. But it's... Um, but And it, it's, it's kind of surreal to be uh, here with you because you were out there. You know what I mean? And, and, and we'll get back to some chronology or something. But does it feel weird to be back in America? Kind of. It'll feel a lot more weird when my uh, active monitoring is over. Because right now, I'm kind of still in Africa mode. I'm kind of still taking my temperature like a million times an hour. I'm still... Which um, you're doing right which now. Which I'm doing right now. Um, I'm still using two thermometers to take it. Uh, 98.4, by the way. 98.4, it's going up. It, I mean, it's going up, but that's because I'm talking and wearing a sweatshirt. Actually, one thing that was really scary um, that I learned uh, is that TV lights actually will make the, will throw this thing off. So at one point, I had a uh, NBC crew here. And the NBC crew, I took my temperature um, in front of them at the beginning just so that they could see that they were safe here. Um, and... After it was over, they wanted to shoot a little more B-roll, and they asked me to take my temperature again. I took my temperature again. It was 101.5. <laughs> I freaked out. I immediately grabbed my oral thermometer um, and took it again and because I figured that the reading must be false because I didn't feel bad at all. I felt great. I felt like I could run a marathon. I felt like I could, like I do today. Um, my temperature, thankfully, on this thermometer was a regular 97.5. Um, so what happens is is the surface of your skin heats up, um, but not your actual body. So to this thing, it thinks you have a fever, but to this thing, it can always tell the truth. And of course, thing one, you press to your forehead, and thing two, you put in your mouth. Exactly. For the listener. Yes. But, so, um, I, and, and again, we're, we're at this tower, and, and we can look outside, and there's downtown Chicago, yeah. which is kind of cool. But it's, uh, I'm not trying to give away your location for the Pitchfork crew. I'm in the, uh, I'm, I'm near Ogilvy, uh, the transportation center. That's what I've been telling everybody. Well, now they're, uh, now they're going to come out here and you're getting death threats, aren't you? I am not getting death threats. Um, well, I was hoping you were getting While I was over there, while I was over there, I was getting death threats. But now that I've been back, I can even, I can even read you the extent of the, uh, the threats that I've gotten. Um. Uh, I got a message from Blaine Smith from, uh, let's see, Bourbonnais, Illinois. And he's got a picture of himself showing off his muscles in his profile picture. He's got good muscles. He's got good muscles. And he's got another photo of a bodybuilder as his uh, cover photo. But the message here, uh, actually, I'll, I'll let you read it because I don't want to read it <coughs> on your show. Next time you go to Liberia, don't come back, you stupid fuck. Yeah, so that's that's the extent of the uh, death threats or the I guess threat thing that I've gotten threat. here. But the actual death threat um, that I uh, got while I was over there um, was uh, the princess thing. So I took the photo of princess and posted it on Reddit. And uh, one of the first comments that I got was, "Princess should be shot, and so should you." Well, that's not a death threat so much as a commentary, right? 
Yeah, I guess that's accurate. I'm actually a little funky on death threats where, you know, you don't want to hear that, but, like, a death threat is... A death threat is, you know, some keyboard comment, you know what I mean? As long as as long as I don't get it in person, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that I'm safe. Didn't I threaten to shoot you when I walked in? <laughs> I think that was Yeah, a, but I, I think we both knew that was a joke. Well 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 <laughs> uh, I, I guess I don't come across threatening enough. No, but so um, people are gonna be wondering what the hell was that all about? <laughs> uh, so um we were on what, day four? Day three? Day four? Day four. Um, day five um, was also a logistics day. I ended up... Remember how uh, MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, was going to let me in on day five? Yeah. I went there, um, and the PR person that I had been talking to had left the country uh, because her mission was up. Her time in country was over. Um, and a, a new person had it. She's like, I, I don't know. That's what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I can show you the text message. She's like, all right, well, come back tomorrow. Um, so I ended up having a bit of a bust that morning and I was thinking, wow, this is frustrating. So I thought of something that David, Daniel Darg, Dan, that's his name, Daniel Darg, um, another reporter that was there had been talking to me about. It. He went and interviewed a casket maker. Um, and so I decided to do the same thing. I went to three different casket makers. Uh, not a single one would talk to me. Um, so I had to go out into the same town where my fixture was come from, which is called Barnersville. Um, it's on the outskirts of Monrovia. Um, it's, if you look at it on a map, it looks like it's only about 20 minutes away, but it took us an hour and a half to get there just because the road conditions were so bad. Um, and I finally got to talk to a casting maker, and I asked him, how's business? Thinking that, you know, with Ebola, business must be booming. Turns out business is awful. No one wants to buy caskets. Um, no one wants to do burials. Everybody's afraid of getting Ebola. So business is basically screwed until this thing is over. Um, ended up going back, <clears throat> doing a story on that. Um, Jesus, the economy is really hard when uh, death is not profitable. Yeah. Actually, uh, a couple couple months ago, most of the foreign companies that were in Liberia declared false majeure, which means that they can break any contract they want um, and just get out of the country um, because of the emergency, and they're just they're they're able to do that, and it really screwed up a lot of things over there, uh, really killed off a lot of jobs, um, and there are a lot of people who are just struggling to get enough food now. So there's a massive food crisis in Liberia, not just because no one has money, but also because it's becoming more and more expensive to transport food into the country because you have to pay pilots extra money um, to fly into the country. and You have to pay people extra money to uh, drive it into the country. So it's getting pretty difficult. Now, the good news is that so far, like the only countries that have been affected by Ebola are on the sea. So... People can ship over crates and crews can still can just stay in the ship and not have contact with anybody. But I'm afraid that once it gets inland, a lot of food, a lot of countries are going to have real food shortages. Is this something, um, you, you, you know, you, you still think about this a lot, right? Like, like it's something you care about. It is something that I care about. And I, I would not have gone if I didn't genuinely care about both the countries uh, and the people in the country. This is my third or fourth trip to Africa. Um, and I love Africa, and I love Liberia. Liberia would be an amazing place to visit. Um, if it, It's beautiful, by the way. It's absolutely beautiful. Amazing place to visit if it wasn't in the middle of a uh, massive Ebola outbreak. Uh, what were the other trips? Ethiopia, Egypt, and Morocco. So, yeah, this is my fourth trip. Um... I presume, and maybe incorrectly, that that the Liberia trip is probably the most eventful. The Liberia trip was the most eventful. Yes. Uh, what else happened out there that kind of sticks with you? Skipping sort of a straight chronology, but I, I uh, <clears throat> so when I finally got to MSF, and thankfully this fits in with our chronology uh, because I finished my story um, on the casket maker on day four, 
And on day five, um, I got to finally get an MSF, or Doctors Without Borders. And um, I met Princess's father. Princess's father had recovered from Ebola, um, and it was his last day. His name was Christopher, Christopher Nanforth. Um, <clears throat> and as he got out, he, um, he, so let me actually explain the process of getting out as an Ebola patient. The first thing you do is you go through a decontamination shower. Um, and that takes about 20 minutes because you're generally a little bit weak. Um, Ebola is not nice to your body. And even if you do survive, it takes a while to recover. Um, so he went through his decontamination shower. And I was waiting uh, on the outside uh, when he did. Um, and they let him sit down and just rest and acclimate uh, to being in an area where he was not seeing people that were either sick or in hazmat suits. Um, and myself and uh, the MSF public relations person that I was with uh, were one of the first people that he had seen in two weeks that weren't in uh, a hazmat suit or didn't have Ebola. So he was happy to see us. Um, so he gets out, he sits in this chair. Uh, they give him clothing. They give him clothing uh, because all of his clothing had to be burned. The clothing that he came with, in with had to be burned. And, and it's in uh, a plastic bag. It's in a blue plastic bag. Uh, what they do is they have him talk to social workers um, about going home. And every single person uh, that goes home in Monrovia, that lives in Monrovia, is sent home with a social worker and a certificate. Uh, to show that he doesn't have Ebola and he can't spread Ebola and that he's now immune to Ebola. Um, it started to rain, so they actually moved him over to the inside of the tent. Um, and they had to ask like three different permission, people's permission in order to move him, and the final person was a doctor. Um, and so he started a bit of a walk over to what ended up being, what I discovered was, um, a wall of survivors, and that's MSF's wall of survivors. Um, what happens? Which is, we're looking at. Yeah, we're looking at it right now. What happens is, is when they get out, they're given the opportunity to dip their hand in a bucket of paint, and then put their hand on the wall, and uh, then the workers sign their name for it because they're still kind of weak. Um, he put his hand up, washed his hands off. Um, and then he was on his way. He did some discharge work, and he headed back to his home. Uh, what was your conversation with him like? I asked him what he did. At the time, I didn't realize that he was Princess's father. Okay, um, I only okay. learned that I only learned that later uh, through a Washington Post article. Um, but I asked him what he did for a living, how he was feeling, um, what he was going to do now that he was out. Um, and he was happy. He was a happy guy. He was he was obviously still weak, but he was smiling. He was in a good mood. Did he um, know about Princess? He did not know about Princess or his wife, and I couldn't have told him because right. one, it's not my place, and two, I also didn't realize that uh, that was who he was. No, but, but so he was in good spirits at that time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. That survivor wall is interesting because there are people who survive it, right? There are people who survive it. And what's really interesting about that is inside MSF, there are actually people who survived it and now are immune. And as a result of their immunity, are perfectly suited for work within the Ebola treatment centers. And there are even some healthcare workers that got sick with Ebola, survived, and went immediately back to work at the treatment centers. And they don't have to worry anymore because they're immune. Are they doing that? They are. Yeah. I met a bunch of them. They're, they've got incredible energy for you know people that just survived Ebola. Um, what else did you do on your trip out there? So, um, we're on, what day are we on? We're on five. day seven, right? No, we just finished day five. Um, I think day six was, um, <clears throat> I think day six was a logistics day. Day six was my last day there. Um, I don't remember. Let's just make sure I get this right. Day six. Oh, right. Day six. Um, I actually linked up with a local reporter um, on my uh, 
last last real day there. Um, and he told me that the most important story that wasn't being covered was uh, the Ebola orphans. So what happens is, is usually dad gets sick from covering Ebola at work or getting Ebola at work. Um, and then mom gets sick from taking care of dad and then they both die. Um, so what happens is, is there are a bunch of Ebola orphans. And this facility right here, which is, it's, it's all painted, uh, all the walls are green, it's an orphanage, but it's also a combination um, a school. Um, they house regular orphans, but they also house Ebola orphans. And um, this particular facility had just housed two Ebola orphans. And that's not that. That's not that. Okay. Um, but it was it was cool, and it was interesting to see that even though there's all this fear, there are still people who are willing it to take in children who not only might have Ebola, Ebola but probably do have Ebola um, just because their parents had it. Um. <clears throat> So I talked to the I talked to the guy who was in charge of that, um, and he's hurting for money. Uh, the government the government isn't providing them much support. He gets one dollar per child um, per month, and that's just that's not enough to cover food. So he relies on uh, community donations, uh, not from outside uh, Liberia, but from within his local community, um, and on school tuition to fund the orphanage. Um, and it was a really touching moment and that was my last day in Liberia well my last real day in Liberia getting out of the country was the fun part yeah uh, isn't that kind of heavy talking to people about orphans and things like that does that affect you at all my, my normal job is covering disasters um, so I cover hurricanes, wildfires, earthquakes uh, tornadoes Pretty much any disaster that exists, including Ebola, you name it, I've covered it. Um, I covered Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Irene, Hurricane Isaac in New Orleans. This 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 type of thing is. You got is, enough hurricanes there? What's that? You got enough hurricanes? I got there? I got more than enough hurricanes. This kind of thing is it's not something you get used to, but it's something that you learn has a way of doing good. So you're covering this. Obviously, it's sad in the moment. Um, but it doesn't affect you for a long time because you know that by taking these photos and writing these articles and doing this video, uh, you know that you are getting this country help. You know that however many eyeballs uh, see this thing are the number of eyeballs that are more likely to donate to Doctors Without Borders, to donate to the Red Cross, to donate to uh, an orphanage like this. And that's what prevents, that's what helps me sleep at night. That's what prevents me from uh, having. Uh, even short-term psychological harm from this. Sure. Uh, how many orphans did you... Did you see a lot of orphans? Yeah, a lot of orphans. Um, I'd say oh, the official count for this particular facility was 42. So 42 orphans in this facility. Did you... Were, were any of them of interviewing age where you could have... Like, yeah, I did. I, talk, I, had, I, had, uh, I had a good talk with um, two of them. Uh, both of them, one male, one female. Both of them wanted to uh, play on the Liberian national soccer team, um, which, entertainingly enough, only takes males, but the female wanted it anyway. Well, I mean, she might be a Moni fan. There you go. You know what I'm talking about, right? I do not know. I don't know anything about sports. I, I believe... <laughs> oh, man. I'll look so stupid if it's not Moni. Uh, Mo, I think, is just a female little leaguer who was lighting it up in the latest Little League World Series. I couldn't even tell you how many touchdowns it takes to score a home run in soccer. All right. That's how uh, little I know about sports. I'll forgive you. <laughs> um, what, so with the... Um, so with the orphanage, that's the last serious thing you do out there. Yeah. And then getting out is an adventure? Why is that? Getting out was a much bigger adventure than the whole trip combined. Um, on the way out, you have to go through three stages of screening. The first stage is in Monrovia when you're lining up for that itsy bitsy Podunk airport. Um, it's not really an airport, as I explained earlier. It's just three rooms. Um, as you're lining up, they take your temperature and you fill out a questionnaire. 
Um, then you hand the questionnaire to people who are in hazmat suits, um, and you head into the airport. Then they take your temperature once again as you get on the airplane. Once you get on the airplane, you can see the pilots have masks on and they've got cuff-length gloves that go up to your elbow, um, which is something that I didn't see while I was coming into the country because you don't see the pilots as you're getting off the plane. You only see them as you're getting on the plane. Sure. Um, so once you land in your transit city, uh, for which for most people it's either Brussels or Casablanca. For me, it was Casablanca. Um, immediately as you get off the plane, before you're even allowed into the terminal, they take your temperature, um, both with a handheld scanner um, and with a... Um, I'm going to pull up this video for you. Get some max out. So they take your temperature with both a handheld scanner... Did you take this video? I did take this video. Um, hopefully your microphone picks this up. But they take your temperature with handheld scanner, um, which is that beeping that you can hear, and I think in the background, um, you can see over there, um, there's a uh, infrared scanner, it's an infrared camera, where you stand there and it takes your temperature, um, it's actually the same model that the Chinese used uh, during SARS, and I recognized it because I actually grew up in China. Can't see without my glasses. During the during the SARS outbreak, and I actually lived on the same block as the SARS hospital, so I was very familiar with that particular camera. Um, once you get to the U.S., it's actually pretty simple. Um, you get led from custom. You get automatically selected for more intense screening uh, when you scan your passport. You get led by the customs guy to a wall of mirrors, and he walks up to one of the mirrors, knocks on the door, uh, takes five steps back, and then a person in a Coast Guard uniform opens the door and uh, motions you in. So I went inside. They immediately took my temperature, asked me a bunch of questions about my Ebola exposure. Um, and that's when uh, they were like, okay, you're fine. Uh, go to the second station. At the second station, they take your down your seat number and your contact information. And I assume they do this because they want to make sure that if there is someone that was sitting next to you um, on the plane, that had Ebola, they want to be able to get in contact with you. Turns out I was wrong about that, but that's not the point. Um, I'll get to that in a second. So I go through, um, I hop on a flight to Chicago the next morning, and I just relax here. I'm not self-quarantining. I hug my girlfriend, which was the first time I had had any sort of human contact in a full week. Um, I hadn't shaken anybody's hands, no fist bump, no nothing. So that was a weird feeling, uh, but it felt good. Um, and Presumably not just by default, right? What? That it felt good. <laughs> yes. Also yes, it felt abnormally good. Um, so, a couple days later, on Saturday, on the next Saturday, six days later, I get a phone call from the New York City Department of Health saying, hey, we know you're in New York City. We'd like to take your temperature and start active monitoring on you. I'm like, I'm not in New York City. I'm in Chicago. I'm like, okay, well, we have to notify the Chicago Department of Health. Um, and they have to be in touch with you and take your temperature for 24 hours. I'm like, all right, whatever. Um, that doesn't happen. Chicago Department of Health doesn't contact me until Wednesday, two days ago. Uh, three. Three days ago. And it was only after I did a radio interview that they found out that I was actually in the country. Um, so they call me immediately, two hours after the interview. And they say, hey, hey, how soon can we send someone over? I'm like, send someone over right now. They were at the apartment within 30 minutes. It was very funny. Um, anyway, there was a radio reporter there uh, for it, and they wanted the radio reporter to leave. I didn't allow that. Um, and the radio <laughs> reporter filed her story. And so all the TV stations found out about it. The Chicago Tribune found out about it. Um, and the uh, Department of Chicago Department of Health issued a statement saying that they didn't know I was in the country until uh, I had done that radio interview. Which is uh, a little alarming, I guess. A little alarming, but I'm really at such low risk. I'm classified at the lowest risk category. Sure. Three risk categories, I'm at the lowest one. I'm sure if I was a high risk that I would be under much more intense monitoring. One would like to hope, right? Yeah, that, that, I would hope. But how, how do you wind up on BEZ? 
I actually have a friend from, uh, I used to work in New York. I used to work for CBS in New York, and I used to work for Fox News in New York, and I used to work for New York One in New York. I, I've worked, I've interned where it worked for free things everywhere. Um, so I've got friends all over the country in, in journalism. You know what it's like. Everybody's, it's a, it's a close-knit community. Everybody knows everybody. Um, so she had been talking to me while I was in Liberia, and we were just chatting. She's like, hey, um, there's a new law saying mandatory quarantine for high-risk workers. Um, I know you're not high risk, but can my, my, my friend who's doing a story about this in BEZ, can she do a story about you? So she did a story, um, and they had me on the morning show. Um, and that's when all the insanity started. So hell broke loose. Yeah. Uh, that's what you get for talking to the media. <laughs> you should never do it. No, is that part weird where uh, becoming the story? So I did have an ethical concern with becoming the story, because that's one of the things you learn to never, ever do. But I looked around, and I noticed, I did some Googling, and I noticed that there was zero coverage of anyone, any doctor, nurse, reporter, no one. Uh, no one had let in the media into their lives uh, to see what it's like to actively be monitored. And that was frustrating, because I know that there are doctors and nurses um, over there that are coming back and that are facing stigma. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to tell their stories by telling my own stories, by, by telling my own story. And if someone had stepped up and done that, I never would have done any of the press. But it just frustrated me so much that there's this stigma out there for the doctors and nurses that no one knows about it. Aside from the, uh, aside from the comments about don't come back or whatnot, are you getting any stigma? My girlfriend's roommate's parents lost their minds. Um, they called my girlfriend's roommate. They called my girlfriend's parents. Um, they they arranged for an emergency hotel in case I showed up with a, uh, a fever. And um, even if I did hypothetically show up, wake up one morning with a fever, I still wouldn't be contagious because you have to come into direct body contact with bodily fluids, which means I would have to literally vomit on my girlfriend in order for her to get sick, and just waking up with a fever won't do that. Um, vomiting really only shows up four to seven days after you first have a fever with Ebola. So, yeah, okay, but, but the stigma's there. The stigma's there. It's definitely there, and it's definitely less big for me because I'm low risk are they, than it is for a doctor or a nurse. Are they over it yet? No, they're not over it. I don't imagine they will be over it until um, until I am finished with my 21 day incubation Were you reading uh, the news comments? You know, there are people who are mad and they're like, you know, this stupid, this stupid guy has a uh, you know, what if, it, what, if he, what if he is sick and it doesn't show up till the 21st day? What day are you on? Uh, right now, I don't know what day I'm on. I can tell you what day I'm finished, and we can count backwards from there. Um, I'm finished on the 10th. Of November. Of November. So I'm nine days away from being finished. All right. So, you know, you could be a late bloomer. But I could be. Um, but most... I'm not really concerned. Right. Most, most, most of the time, uh, 21 days is like the safety day. 21 days is the cover your ass. Um, don't... don't just be 100% safe day. Um, realistically, symptoms show up between day 7 and day 10. Um, and a lot of the time in Liberia, they're actually showing up on day 4. So if I did have it, I imagine I'd be sick right now. Actually, the one thing that I'm worried about is malaria, um, which we talked about earlier. Right. I thought it was funny when we were talking, uh, when I came into your apartment and we didn't shake hands and you said you're terrified of catching a cold from someone else. Which will, which would then force you to get quarantined. Yep, immediately quarantined if I have any sort of sickness anywhere. So every time I go out, I've been opening doors uh, by using my sleeve. I've been avoiding touching things. I, I've avoided crowded places, uh, places where people could sneeze and then the droplets would uh, come to me and I can inhale them. That that stuff is scary. If people want to follow you, what's the best way to follow you? Twitter. What's Twitter. the handle? And at, at MJ DiPaola. D-I... D at MJ D-I-P-A-O-L-A. Um, 
All right? And uh, promise me one thing. If Obama comes in here to take you out, if he personally comes in here to take you out, I will be the first reporting call. You got it. All right. Thank you very much for of your course. time. Of course. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Absolutely.